DJ Raw invested some of his money into the music business. We got so much money, we didn't know what to do. We started producing our own records, our own vinyls, our own CD. We put together a quarter of a million dollar studio, another hundred thousand dollars for a tour bus. I mean, we just putting money out there. Another hundred grand for a couple of record stores. During the 80s and early 90s, hip hop was not fully accepted in Miami. Radio stations weren't playing it. A lot of brothers didn't even know they were hip hop. You know, they were on the bass era, the booty era, and if you would try to associate them with hip-hop, they really didn't want to be a part of the hip-hop. Real that I, I was called into 99 Jams for an interview, you know, and this was in the 90s, and I was, Uncle Al was on the station. I was excited because I thought that at that point, you know, they were going to show love to the hip-hoppers. And what they told me was, you need to stop what you're doing with the hip-hop because you're going to change the culture in Miami. Welcome back to Why Are We Like This, the only true crime podcast where we treat Florida like the active crime scene it is. I'm your host, David Quinones. My co-host, Tomas Kennedy, on international assignment, is uh, joining us as well. Tomas, how's it going? Uh, happy to report. Reporting for duty. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, uh, I'm joined, as always, by my other co-host, Gerald Doherty. Gerald, how are you? Hello, doing well. Happy to be here. So there are folks out there that are pointing out the multi-pronged attacks against decency, tolerance, democracy, and just common sense scouring our state, our coverage area. And these folks would have us continually exploring these dour issues week in and week out, seeking meaning where there is only chaos. And to these folks, I say, no, not this week. After last week's unseemly deep dive into the background of Senator Rick Scott, we thought this would make uh, for an ideal opportunity for something of a palate cleanser. And what better palate cleanser is there than, you guessed it, 90s hip hop. Our guest today is John Cordero, the founding publisher and senior editor of the erstwhile Miami underground hip hop magazine, The Cypher. He's also the author of the newly released book, The History of Miami Hip Hop, the story of DJ Khaled, Pitbull, DJ Craze, and other contributors to South Florida scene, which is available at microcosmpublishing.com or at your local independent bookstore if you're lucky. I found mine at the Coral Gables Books and Books. If you have a books and books near you, check it out there. It's probably uh, probably available. John, welcome to Why Are We Like This? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So John wrote this book and Gerald and I were talking last week about, it was, it was very funny because um, Gerald had never heard of cannabis or he hadn't listened to cannabis before. Yeah. So I went, I, I made a little playlist for Gerald. Like, here's how you, here, you know, if you want to, there's a certain kind of guy that's into cannabis and I'm that guy. And like, so I sent that playlist to, uh, to Gerald and I was like, as I was reading your book, John, I was like, oh, this might be neat to like build like a, cur a curated Spotify playlist. So I did that. Um, and you can find it on, uh, on Spotify. It's called the history of Miami hip hop read along list. And the playlist starts with this episode that you're listening to right now. Um, and so you're going to be able to listen to this episode, go buy a copy of John's book and then sit down and, uh, listen to that, um, that curated selection of music that's mentioned directly in the book uh, as you're reading John's book. So we've got it linked in the episode description. Um, so go pick up John's book. Uh, yeah. So, and uh, I'll send you the link as well, John. So you have. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. I definitely want to listen to that playlist. So before we get into the real questions, I wanted to point out a couple of, of the many really good photographs that you have in this, in this book. Uh, folks like big pun, fat Joe, tribe called quest, outcast, Diddy back when he was puff daddy. It's a veritable who's who. Um, and, but more than that, I wanted to point out this one photo here 
And before we get to the real questions, I wanted to, to, to show everybody this. This is young, fresh-faced John um, in 1999 sitting with a 1999 Lil' Kim at Lil' Kim's. Whoa. Um, yeah. And on behalf of every guy in their, like, early, mid-40s, I've got to ask you, man, did you did you take your shot? Did you shoot your shot <laughs> in that moment? Did you have... Did you have actually the, the there courage? Is a, <laughs> um, I did not because I was in work mode. But more importantly, there is a small correction that uh, man in the photo is actually not me, but my friend Chris. Oh, Fahad. okay. It looked like he you. Did not, yeah, he did not take a shot either because oh. he was <laughs> professional. And it was a Little Camp album release party at the now defunct Club Warsaw um, on what was it, Fifteenth and Collins. Right down the block from Cameo. I think there's uh-huh. a Senor Frogs there. I don't know what's there now. Last time Hell I was yeah. there, it was a Senor Frogs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it was a party, uh, album release party, and we just corralled there like, let's give us, you know, 10 minutes of your time, whatever. And that's what happened. That's pretty much what we, you know, guerrilla type, just catching people. Give us, you know, we want to talk to you, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I want to get into like the, the origins of, of the cipher and the magazine and how, how you guys um kind of came up with the idea and, and all the yeah. your sort of partners in crime that, that helped um pu- pull it off. But maybe you could start by setting the stage for us when you arrived in Miami, like from Orlando in the in the nineties. Miami was already on the map as the home yes. of Foodie Base and Two Life Crew, Poison Clan, Uncle Luke. But this was a moment when the larger hip hop world was was moving towards something that was a little more MC led, it was grimier, it was a little more gangster sound, um, more lyric driven. What was the broader local music scene like in Dade when you got back then? It was just Dade County, uh, Dade like when you um, when you got here, and where did hip hop fall into it? Like what, where, and how did you fall into that? Right, of course. So when I got here in '95, summer '95, um, Miami bass was the dominant form of music that you heard in Miami. However, it was on its way out, to be honest. It, it was Atlanta was now taking over that manner of bass music. Um, so here we had uh, underground hip hop scene that was overshadowed by the Miami bass scene. So on the radio, on the pop station, Power 96, 99 Jams, etc., you just heard whatever crossover hip hop. You know, I remember Coolio, Gangsta's Paradise, uh, Thuggish, Ruggish Bone, you know, uh, Cypress Hill, right? Songs that crossed over and, and weren't in the underground anymore. So that's the kind of music that you heard. And then we had two college radio shows, uh, WVUM, Hip Hop Shop, and WDNA, Saturday Night Funk Box. So these shows came on late at night on the weekend, and those were the only two places where you could hear what we considered to be real hip hop. That was another thing back then. Uh, yeah. People that were into hip hop scene, oh, Miami bass, that's whack. That they're not saying right. anything. The booty shaking. That was the dominant sentiment. Um, I disagreed. I myself and a few others thought that Miami bass was hip hop. It was a part of hip hop culture. Yeah, it was party music. It was fast. It, you know, girls and and bass and the cars, all of that. But to me, that was hip hop. So because they weren't rhyming like Nas or Wu Tang Clan, didn't make it any less hip hop. Yeah, what's what, what's wrong with booty shaking? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so it, it party music, right? Hip hop, uh, you know, in the Bronx in the early in the mid to late seventies was considered party music. Mm-hmm. It was underground, but it was you know 
uh, everybody getting together, dancing, b-boying, b-girls, you know, breaking. So dance was a part of hip hop from the very beginning. And here in Miami, dance was also a part of hip hop, whether it was bass, you know, booty shaking or other types of dances. You know, back then there was a hydraulics, a Tootsie Roll, and, you know, all these yeah. different dance moves and, and the butterfly. And then hip hop, you know, was moving away from that. So hip hop was going through that phase of keep it real, quote unquote, represent, yeah. quote unquote. That was that back was the dominant. Like yeah, the backpacker scene was coming yeah. in. Right. Uh, gangster rap. Uh, there was violent rap. That I Nowadays, people complain about, oh, the, you know, drill rappers and violent rappers. We had violence back then, too. Yeah. Like it, it was different. It's not what it is now, but there was still violent content in some of the lyrics. So I don't think anything's changed in that regard. But yeah, in Miami back then, it was booty shaking, Miami bass, and underground hip hop. Guess what so I found? There, there was sort of a, nat- a natural demarcation, right? Because you talk about how Miami is this very segregated place, and it still is, right? It's yes. the same way today. I was hoping you could maybe give us a lay of the land. Um, there were, you know, there was the scene from people like in your neck of the woods at the time, I guess, sort of Westchester, sort of south of the of the 836. Yeah. Uh, more white, Latino area. And then there was north of the 836. A lot of the black communities, which obviously are still there. The city, the, the county still laid out kind of the same way. Um, maybe you could also talk a little bit about the role, specifically Miami Beach and Wynwood before it was the Wynwood that we know now. They played yeah. as these kind of like neutral territories where these two types of music, two types of, I guess, genres within the genre would come together and they would play nice. Usually, for the most part, they would play nice. But what was yeah. that like? Yeah, exactly. So back then, South Beach was the party district. That was the party area. So everybody from all over Miami, Broward and beyond went to South Beach. Uh, that's where the clubs were. And that's where the artists would perform. So... Yeah, it was a neutral ground. You know, you might see a few fist fights, whatever, crews beefing, things like that. But it wasn't on, on anything having to do with racial or background, anything like that. But the city itself, as you pointed out, was is was and is laid out. You know, we know the grid, right? Southwest, Northwest. But in the Southwest, what we call La Sauceta, it was, you know, majority Hispanic. And uh, most of the kids that were into hip hop were either into the commercial type of hip hop, the crossover that I mentioned earlier, or the yeah. underground hip hop influenced by New York. Of course, New Yorkers have been moving here since, you know, 1920 or whatever. <laughs> so there's always been New Yorkers here and they brought, you know, their their music and their influence. And in the Northwest side, it was different. You have Little Haiti, you have Carroll City, you know, up North Miramar, which is more Caribbean, Jamaican influence. And then you have, you know, American, Black American. So all of that was mixed in in those areas where you heard dancehall reggae, you heard what we call hood rap. You know, this was uh, No Limit, uh, Master P, when he was just starting out. Um, uh, all kinds of different, you know, rappers that didn't make it past that underground hood thing. Just like in the Southwest, you heard the backpacker underground rap. And a lot of them didn't make it past that stage either. So on the radio, there was also a big thing happening at the time, which was pirate radio. Mm-hmm. So pirate radio started coming in and most of those stations were based in the Northwest. But, yeah, to tell us about DJ Raw. Yeah, so DJ Raw was a, a very influential figure back then, still is uh, one of the pioneers of hip hop. He moved here from New York in like the late 70s. So he was one of the very first uh, New York hip hop uh, type heads that moved here. And so in the early 90s, he and uh, another colleague of his started the festival known as Hoodstock. 
So Hoodstock was also another neutral gathering ground for all the heads to gather. Um, it took place in Wynwood in Roberto Clemente Park. This is when Wynwood was not Wynwood as we know it today. This is pre-Art Basel, yeah. Yes, yes, very pre-gentrification. <laughs> Wynwood at the time was not gentrified at all. It was not a safe place to be. Um, and so he made it a safe place to be for us. Uh, it was an all-day festival, all weekend. It coincided with How Can I Be Down? which was another big industry conference. And that one took place in South Beach. So you had the juxtaposition of the industry um, people flying down and partying and performing in South Beach and then Raw creating this event, free event for the local heads in Wynwood, you know, right across the causeway. So that was a split already between the commercial scene that we saw in South Beach and in the underground scene that was taking place in events such as Hoodstock. Um, so and there, the was, time, there was some tension there, right? There was like, I mean, there was, you, you talk about it a little bit in your book there, how like the, the, how can I be down sort of set was really about the, the mainstreaming and the, the, um, I guess the commercialization of, 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 of hip hop in Miami, kind of like making Miami, um, sort of like a destination for hip hop. Yes, Whereas yes. the, you know, Hoodstock was more about like growing what's in Miami, growing the people that were in Miami. I thought that was an interesting kind of push and pull that was happening at that time. Yeah, exactly. Me being there witnessing that it was the beginning of, you know, pretty soon after How Can I, How Can I Be Down, artists started coming down to perform more regularly and to film videos, um, you know, in Miami, Puff Daddy, Cisco, right? All the uh, Fat Joe, all these guys were filming videos down here and showing that image of beach, party, sun, girls in bikinis, all of that. So. Meanwhile, in the underground, it was uh, DJ Raw, fortunately, at the same time he was putting on these events for the youth. He was also involved in drug smuggling. So this is all public record. It's yeah. all, you know, he's served his time. He's home now, etc. At the time when he got arrested, when he was arrested in 97, it was a big, big blow to the scene because that meant no more Hoodstock, no more pirate radio. He had his own pirate radio station as well. So all that went away when he, when he got sent away. And then that made that opening for the commercial to pretty much take over. Um, so then by the late 90s, when the cypher started in 98, the beach was South Beach, you know, in big capital letters, like people were coming in from all over the country and the world to party in South Beach because that image was already out there of South Beach as the party central district in America. So that was, that was when the cypher started was trying to shine the heads that were being left behind by the South Beach commercial scene. There was a really funny story, uh, guys, that I heard one time on a podcast where DJ Raw was being interviewed and he talked about hosting at his house. Um, you know, he would bring in, a, you know, lots of luminaries that would come in. They would, they would, you know, be guests on his pirate radio show, which was kind of mobile and depending on what day of the week it was, you know, but it was at his house at this point. And he would have to put away a lot of the paraphernalia or a lot of the sort of telltale signs of his other business that he was running out of the house. And one time, apparently he, uh, he had iced tea over and this was, I guess in I guess, 95, 96, something like that. And iced tea is iced tea. So you can put the stuff away and, you know, throw blankets over your operation, but it's iced tea. He's going to know what's up. And he, he told him, you really got to get this under control, man. They're going to come after you. And sure enough, he said, DJ Ron, this interview is like, and they did. They came after me and they busted me. And that was a big moment, right, when when, when DJ Raw went down because it kind of impugned the credibility a little bit of, of Hoodstock and of this nascent movement at the time, right? 
Exactly. When he got arrested, it was all over the, the news, all over the Herald, like front page, like Channel 7, all the you know news outlets. So yeah, it was a big blow. My mom is like, wait, you're hanging out with these drug dealers? I'm like, no, mom, he wasn't a drug dealer to me. Like he was, you know, somebody that 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 I looked up to that put up these events and had this radio. Like we all knew what he was doing, but we, we weren't involved in that. You know, like people that were involved in that weren't really involved in the hip hop side of things and vice versa. And that's the other thing, like the image, you know, the, the whole thug gangster image, like he didn't, he didn't do that. He kept his business and hip hop separate, you know, he didn't get on the radio and like, oh, check me out. You know, I'm bringing in kilos. Like he didn't do that. Um, if you knew, you knew, you know, this was all <laughs> word of mouth type of thing, but right. it wasn't no like fronting on, oh, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the dawn of Winwood. Like he, it wasn't like that. So, but when he did get arrested and it did become public knowledge, then that was like, oh man, like, what are we going to do now? Um, so, you know, other, other venues stepped in and there were other um, heads in the movement that were, that try to keep that, legacy going. One of them was us because we started documenting what was happening because nobody else was doing it. That was pretty much the main reason for starting the cipher. All the big magazines at the time, the source, rap pages, all of them, they would just do one little blurb, one sentence thing, two left crew, Uncle Lou. Yeah. And that was it. And it's like, okay, yeah, two left crew, great. We all love him. We all loved Uncle Luke, but there was so much more happening. And that that was the main reason for us to start the cipher. I wanted to ask, because you've said previously that um, Miami is a city that paves over its own history, like it's always about new, 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 like forget everything from back then. I wanted to ask, but for the fact that it was documented, things from that time and that's that part of the scene that you think would have been lost to the wind, and also things that in the development of the hip hop scene that you see enduring still today. Uh, I mean, other than like technological, like instead of digging through crates for mixtapes, you're digging through Spotify links and SoundCloud pages and what have you, like things from the spirit of that time that you see still enduring. Um, I'd say just the overall the hustle mentality, the grind. You know, back then it was guys would hang out in South Beach and Washington Ave. Here, take a CD, take a flyer, you know. You go to a party and then you get bombarded with flyers and, and CDs and tapes. Come back to your car, your car's like flooded. Leave it on, you know, the windshield, um, flyers and, and CDs and everything. Nowadays, it's just links, right? Like you said, people send out links. People DM you. Everybody, you know, back and forth on check this out. You know, uh, group text, group chats, all of that. That's that's pretty much the same sharing and hustling mentality where people would just send out a link and everybody forwarding the link and you know sharing it back and forth and posting on their stories and that's pretty much the same thing that was happening back then it was analog now it's digital but it's the same it's the same hustle it's the same mentality everybody's trying to get seen heard everybody's trying to get their music out and you know back then it was expensive to record music uh, right. if you if you did it at home in your bedroom we could tell it sounded cheap it didn't sound yeah. good Right. Um, but now everybody records in their bedroom and it sounds great because we all, yeah. you know, the technology has advanced to the point where you don't need to go to a studio. You can record in your laptop and it will sound just like it sounds recorded in the studio. So that's lowered the barrier of entry and it's made the music more accessible. Um, the one thing that I think is different now and then is the filtering option where back then you had gatekeepers like magazines, even ourselves. We, we did reviews. And some of the reviews, they weren't that great. We didn't sure. like it. But music is subjective. And we didn't like it. That didn't mean it was whack. It just mean we didn't like it. Somebody else might have thought it was the greatest thing ever. Um, but 
now there's no there's no gatekeeping. There's there's really no reviews like that. It, there's really not that function of magazines and, and blogs. Even the blog era, the blog era came and went. There's no more hardly any blogs now. Uh, this was early 2000s, mid 2000s, where everybody had a blog and everybody was posting and reviewing. Yeah, it's it's like there were chapters, right? There was like the blog yeah. chapter, and then there was the forum chapter where everybody right. was like had message their own boards, forum, message boards, and yeah, and then yeah, and then social media came and kind of ate all. Yeah, that exactly. Off, right? yeah. yeah, correct. And World Star, I guess World Star came and ate all. <laughs> right, that, that was yeah. They were a gatekeeper too because they yeah. they were able to promote the music and get it out to where. A million people, you know. But, but before all that, there was an organizing principle that you talk about that I think is under discussed in the larger world of hip hop these days. When we look back at the roots, and it's like pre-internet, there was a version of the internet, and it was tagging, it was graffiti. Like people were were sending, you know, messages, maybe not so overt, but just sort of like th- through like signal, almost like, oh, this is this is a spot to to congregate. You could see it from like you know, the, the, the Palmetto interchange, you could see the building by the, by mall right. of America and be like, Oh, that's a spot where I got to go. Cause there's people there that know what's up their heads there. So what was that like? I mean, in this, like for a lot of our listeners, it must seem like prehistoric, but um, yeah. You know, pre-internet days. Um, no, it was, it was definitely pre-internet. Miami had a big, big graffiti scene back then. It was concentrated around what we call penance. Penance where Miami slang uh, started from, it came from the word penitentiary. Because the original pennant, the very first one, was an uncompleted, unfinished penitentiary that was being built in Fontainebleau, Doral area. There's now some apartment building there, of course. Um, but back then, it, w- it was abandoned for whatever reason. I don't know why. But then graffiti writers took it over and turned it into a pennant, a graffiti, outdoor graffiti gallery. And then others started popping up around the city. And then one of, one of them, the one I lived close to, was the Malibu pennant. I lived uh, on 87th Avenue. And Malibu was right down the street, uh, right next to Mall of the Americas. Uh, there's an apartment complex there now, too. <laughs> yeah. So back then, yeah, it, it was unfinished development and it was just taking over and you could walk and drive by and just see giant murals, giant graffiti pieces, you know. And basically what Wynwood is now is what these pennants were back then, just mural after mural after mural. And... Everybody congregated there. Even if you didn't write graffiti, they became hangout spots. People were just hanging out, smoking weed, listening to music. Other guys are painting. Some guys are beefing, you know, crews fighting. Like it was, it was a free for all time. It was totally free. Police didn't care. I never, I didn't have any issues with police at any other penance. They just left us alone. And it, it just became, by the, by the time the late 90s, early 2000s, there were at least 10 penance all over Miami. A few survive nowadays, um, but most of them were turned down. You know, like I said, a lot of them are now apartment complexes, housing, etc. Um, so there's only a few that are still active. But again, now Wynwood is, you know, it's Wynwood. So yeah. does it give you like kind of a bad taste in your mouth that like when you go through Wynwood and you drive down like second and you see like it's kind of become this appropriated thing? It's kind of like a, like it's a commercially approved or corporate approved like and, and almost like master planned and it's it's like it's bloodless a little bit less organic than and but meanwhile 30 years ago you know the the same artists were being chased off with you know, with light flashlights and security guards and stuff like that yeah absolutely i mean uh, I, i've witnessed in my own lifetime the evolution of winwood from being the hood from being you know the ghetto and all of that to what it is today and i think even south beach south beach used to be a dump you know back in the 80s 
and it was just old people and refugees and, and whatnot and cheap housing. And now, and then in the nineties, South Beach became South Beach, you know, in bright lights. And you go to South Beach today, and it's dead again. It's not hood anymore, but nobody goes to South Beach to party. Nobody, there's a couple of clubs left, the big clubs, right? Live and Story. That's it. All the other clubs are gone, and now people party in Wynwood and downtown in Brickell now. And so it's just the natural evolution in Miami. Like Alapata now is the what Wynwood was 20 years ago. Like Dutch, Dutch gentrification is starting now in Alapata. So in 10, 15 years, I believe Alapata is going to be like Wynwood was 10, 15 years ago. Galleries, uh, clubs, restaurants, you know, it's there's always that evolution of like first the struggling artists and the outcasts move in, then it becomes cool, then it becomes trendy, and then like the trust fund kids come in and they open up shops and and then it becomes like a hot spot. And then the tourists come in, the tourist buses, and then it, gets annoying. it becomes like yeah. Yeah, and it it gets played out. Winwood is kind of getting played out now. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's it's got to that level of like it's just soulless and corporate now. There's glass condos in Winwood and all that stuff. So that's why like Alapata is now up next. But and uh, Miami's always been like that for better or for worse. Yeah, John. I actually actually wanted to like uh, ask you about this. I was I was waiting for the right moment. Uh, and it's funny that uh, you say that about Wynwood. I completely agree. I think one of the oldest, if not the oldest bars in Wynwood right now is is Gramps. That's that's like left standing. And yeah. I was talking to to Adam, the the owner, um, a couple months ago, and he was telling me how you know he's like constantly having to deal with uh, like noise complaints and things like that from like the surrounding like residential like buildings that have been put up um yeah that just weren't there you know so and 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 i mentioned that because my real question is you know in south beach that you know you mentioned used to be a party spot uh that you know came up from again you know kind of like a a working class neighborhood and now it's become sort of like dead again especially i think covid hit it really hard um you're, you're you're seeing like a very like hostile push by the residents to 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 remove right those party elements and the clubs and you know the the late night scene um and and you know i think a, a lot of it is centered around you know a hip-hop weekend um right. I, I just wanted to get yeah what what's what's your 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 take on that right and, and i think a lot of it is quite frankly like pretty pretty racist in tone and it's been echoed by a lot of the 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 city the the city commission there but yeah I just wanted to to get what your opinion is on it no I agree I mean you have Memorial Weekend right Memorial Day weekend in South Beach for the longest has been this you know ordeal for everyone involved you know for the tourists that come in for the authorities the residents everybody has something to say and complain about it and I think it's just been mismanaged because South Beach and downtown has ultra music festival but they don't target the people that come to ultra the same way they target the people that come down for Memorial day weekend. They're both here to party. They're both here to spend money. They're, you know, we live off their dollars, you know, we live off tourism dollars here and they're coming in with a lot of money to spend. But then the ones in that goes to South beach for Memorial weekend, no, you're not allowed here. We're going to make it into a police state. We're going to, you know, close down the causeway. We're going to, you know, make it one lane only. Meanwhile, in Ultra, there's it's no secret that drugs are rampant and, you know, that EDM crowd is big and into, you know, it's part of the scene, uh, Molly and all the others, right? 
but they're not targeted that way as, as you know, noise, they, they make noise, right? The, the music's pumping day and night. There's people all over the street. They got to close down the streets, all of that. But it's not the same. So why is it that these dollars are good in downtown in Ultra, but they're not good in South Beach for Memorial Weekend? And I do acknowledge there have been incidents. There have been violent incidents in, during Memorial Weekend. There's been uh, stabbings and fights and shootings and all of that. I don't necessarily think that people coming down to party for Memorial Weekend are going out shooting and stabbing people, right? Um, from what I've read in the reports, a lot of these uh, violent incidents are locals, right? Like I mentioned, people have beefing and, and have conflict. Yeah, they, and bring, oh, they bring their beefs yeah. from the other side of the causeway. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, there he goes, yeah. get them, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I think, yeah, that there's, it, it, it should be, there's got to be a way to handle it, just like they handle it in downtown during Ultra and during Music Week and Winter Music Conference. Just because the crowds happen to be different, it doesn't, you know, we shouldn't discriminate one over the other. They're both bringing in money. They're both... Uh, contributing to the economy, you know, hotels, restaurants, etc. And so, why why do we have to make it like a police state during Memorial Weekend when we don't turn downtown into a police state during Ultra Weekend? Yeah, it's it's funny T that you bring that up because like, okay, I'm I, I, at the, the contemporary the the contemporaneous time that you John were you know writing about everything in the history of Miami hip hop and and I want to talk in a moment with with you about the cipher and the creation of the magazine but like at that time I was living in Las Vegas I was um uh very involved in the hip hop scene out there in college and we had within our like larger orbit of 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 people that artists that we were involved with we had um this one guy who's incredibly talented his name was Amir he went by the name tragic and uh Arnold tragic yeah well he, he you you know you might know this 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 story then this um what happened was tragic uh you know he had a, a little bit too much uh, bad molly or something and um opened fire on police officers he, he killed one cop he injured another one and uh, it was this enormous story for a little while in 2006 and then um, sure enough, all of a sudden you start seeing hip hop shows getting pulled from venues in, in, in Vegas, uh, Eminem canceled a show, Snoop Dogg, all these like, whatever, imagine who in 2006 would be performing in Las Vegas in that realm and pulled. And it was done in this just real, like hacksaw indiscriminate way. Like we're just, we can very easily almost by the color of skin, identify what this whole element is. Let's just not have that anymore. And it's so easy and it's happened so often in cities like, like Las Vegas and Miami where, um, you know, they just kind of get vilified, like the whole industry, not even the industry, but like the people, the artists and everybody, the, 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 the heads, the people that are involved in it get, get vilified. It's, it's, it's so easy to do. Um, I, I, but I want to shift focus a little bit over back to the, to, to the cipher because the cipher is sort of the organizing principle of the book. And it's like the history of this magazine, of this like brief, very influential, short-lived, but like, you know, outsized in its importance. Um, how did the cipher come to be? And then how did it kind of come to its end? Like, wh what was the, the arc there? Yeah, so at the time in the, you know, late 90s, uh, all of us being young and involved in the hip-hop scene were also part of organizations, hip-hop center organizations like Universal Zulu Nation, Miami Chapter, um, that uh, chapter unfortunately came to an end, uh, internal, you know, disagreements, et cetera. So people broke off and started um, their own organizations. 
Uh, one of them, uh, my friend Godfrey started Planet Earth Productions. Uh, my friend Chris, the one in the Little Kim picture, uh, he started 360 Productions. These were just hip hop crews, you know, centered around the culture. And then we would gather, uh, you know, we all had like our t-shirts and, and the whole thing. And, and then it became a thing of, okay, what are we gonna do? Let's create something that's gonna document what's happening. Somebody, uh, there was this girl in Planet Earth Production, Christina, she had an idea to make a Miami hip hop newsletter. Uh, when that came to me, I was like, oh, this is, I like this, but let's make it something more. Instead of a newsletter, let's go higher, make it like a magazine. Cause I was, I was into the magazines I, every month, you know, the source, rap sheet, or magazine, I, I was reading them every month. So I wanted to do something like that. These were all, you know, full color, national distribution, glossy, et cetera. We didn't have the budget for that. We were kids, uh, 20 years old, living at home, no investors, no, no, you know, part-time jobs. So it was, let's, let's see, let's ask around what we can do to get, you know, this magazine off the ground, found a printer in Hialeah, of course, shout out Hialeah yeah. and had, this, uh, this printer's still in business. You said, yes, you yes. Know, like, continental like, printing. <laughs> that's a very Hialeah thing to be in business yes. for 40 years doing the exact same thing. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so we went over there and I asked them, and yeah, we can do black and white news, newspaper, newsprint, you know, that's like the, the cheapest printing option there was at the time. And that's what we did. It was, it, what we did then was go out to local businesses, hip hop shops, uh, you know, t-shirt shops, barber shops, uh, anything that attracted that clientele that we were part of. We went to them with the, you know, hey, we want to put out this magazine. Would you like to buy an advertising spot? $200, $300. And then from that money we used to pay the printing and then we gave away the newspaper for free. We didn't care. We didn't want to like money was the last thing on our mind. Uh, it was just about the love of the scene and trying to make uh, a documentation, read about yourselves, read about Miami, read about this party we went to last month, read about this rapper coming up, this DJ, this graffiti artist. Uh, that's what we wanted. We, uh, our theme was how were the four elements in every issue? So every issue, hey, one rapper, one DJ, one B-girl, B-boy, one graffiti writer, and it just interview them. And then documenting, we had club listings, right? Uh, this Friday, you know, this club's going off. Saturday, Fat Joe's performing, you know, that kind of thing. And then uh, some poetry and reader submissions and things like that and reviews. So that was pretty much the beginning of it. It was a desire to document what was going on. It was a desire to have Miami read about Miami since, again, the magazines were ignoring us. Uh, so it went off pretty well, got a very good response, uh, lasted for a couple of years. And then the end was pretty much uh, related to the beginning because, like I said, we were kids. We didn't know anything. We didn't know about no business plan. We didn't know about business checking account. We didn't know anything like that. So, you know, we have all this money coming in and then people... Yeah, I remember uh, at one point in the book, you, you've, you're many issues deep into this venture and yeah. you both you look at each other and you say oh we, we need to start an llc or it's like, yeah 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 it was a couple of years at this point and you're like exactly. oh, yeah, maybe we should officially incorporate <laughs> one of our um we had a we had like i mentioned local artist submissions and uh this very talented artist uh sent us a drawing and we published it and then this magazine uh coming out of coral gables uh, XUM Hurricanes linebacker, he took that drawing and put it in his magazine. No credit, no payment, no thank you, the cipher, nothing. So we saw that and we're like, okay, we just got our artwork stolen and there's nothing we can do about it because we're not even incorporated. There's no copyright. There's no business address. There's, you know, nothing. Yeah. It's just coming out of our bedrooms. Stole, stole from who? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's a free magazine. I, you know, there's no copyright, no nothing. 
So then once when that happened, it's like, okay, we need to start an LLC. We need to incorporate. We need to open a business account. By the time that was happening, the magazine was on its last legs because we were beefing also internally. Um, we started cutting and pasting. And then one of my friends was good with Photoshop. So then he started doing the layout on, on Mac and Photoshop, the big, big booty Macs from back then. Yeah. Um, I meant. Yeah. And then, um, so, so I was stressing him like, come on, hurry. We got these advertisers. We got deadlines. We, you know, we got to get this out by uh, next week, whatever. And then what I learned from that experience, you can't rush art. You can't rush greatness. You know, artists are creating, you can't like put a deadline on that. And I didn't know that back then. So then that led to like us internally, you know, in-house beef, in-house, you know, static and, yeah. Everyone just went their own ways in the end. It was like, I can't work with you anymore. I'm stressed out. I don't like you anymore. We're always arguing. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a, a divorce, you know, a marriage gone bad. That's, that's basically what happened. It, was, it got to the point where I can't stand you. I can't, you know, get away from me. It, it got there was, nothing, there was nothing worse in the late 90s than being the one friend who knew how to use Photoshop. Like, <laughs> that was like the worst. <laughs> Everybody came to you with yeah, that, all yeah. of their stuff. And you're just like, God damn it. Is this what yes. I'm going to be doing? <laughs> exactly um but you guys while you were small you were also mighty i want to talk about a couple of stories that you guys had specifically um with the vagaries of publishing and deadlines back then and actually mm -hmm. like, the time it would take for things to hit the printer and get into people's hands you guys were actually the ones that broke the story of a tribe called quest breaking up can you tell me about that like what sounded like a very sad interview you had with fife dog you know r.i.p um, yes. On the heels of that, that, that news and, and the role you guys played in breaking that story. Yeah, that was definitely one of my highlights, personal highlights back then. Uh, I grew up listening to Tribe. Um, so it was, you know, to meet Fife in person and not only meet him, but get to talk to him at an in-depth, you know, conversation interview level was amazing to me. Um, they were, he was down here. Uh, I remember it was at Studio 183 and it was a promo show because he was trying to put out a solo record. So the big media, the source and the other magazines, they had the story, but because the lead time was greater than ours, then the magazine didn't come out until like two months later after they announced they broke up. Meanwhile, we just happened to catch him that night and he told us, yeah, Travis no more. And we were shocked. I, I didn't, you know, that I didn't, I didn't see any press release, anything like that. It had just happened like a week before or something. So he just happened to be in Miami and we happened to catch him there. And when he told us that it was like, okay, we need, we got to talk about this. And so that's what the interview was about, just a retrospective of his career, highlights, what happened, what led to the breakup. So, okay, we got this great interview. Let's put it out immediately. We already have the issue coming out. So it came out like two, three weeks later after we did the interview. So yeah. at least people in Miami that were reading were like, oh my God, Tribe broke up. And then two months later, the big color cover in the source, you know, Tribe Conquest is no more, et cetera. So like, yeah, we beat them to the punch, but it was because we had they were here in Miami. We didn't have the yeah. resources to go up to New York and, yeah. you know, join the record label media day, you know, that they used to do. And so we just happened. It was lightning in a bottle. It was, it was just right place, right time. And, you know, that was definitely a highlight, just being able to talk to him and, and get the story straight from him of how Tribe, you know, all they did and all the accomplishments they had and what happened with the breakup, uh, making music. You know, um, this was when the Love Movement, their their last album before um, "Thank You for Your Service" came out. That yeah. was their last group album. So he was on a promo run for that album as well. And so it, that was when the scene was changing. If you remember, in that album they have a song with Noriega, 
and Oregon Trap Called Quest are like the furthest, you know, yeah, when it comes like, to music. I love them both, but at the time it was like, what does Nori got to do with, you know, weird combo? Trap- yeah. yeah. And I asked him about but that. But that was because and, they, you know, they came off of Beat, uh, Beats Rhymes of Life and they got so much shit for that album. I th- it felt like they were trying something, like they were trying to recapture something. And, you know, but yeah, like he mentioned how the- Five Dogs said that, like, mm-hmm. they couldn't even iterate because everything that they did was so specific each each album that they would have was like yeah its own capsule and, and then a, a, like kind of like a new concept every time yeah if you remember in beats rhyme in life they brought in jd jay dilla yep. who was you know just starting out unknown back then and so the reaction was pretty much i don't what's going on here this isn't the tribe sound that yeah. i know and love we weren't ready for jay dilla back then <laughs> um you know he had also done the far side lab can california which is a great amazing album classic but yeah. for me personally by beats Ram in life i was disappointed at the time uh in hindsight it, it was a good album but again when you're coming off three classics you set the standard so high that even if you make a good album it's not a classic like the first three were and so it was like a disappointment but that's how bar how high the bar was for track called quest where you expected classic material every single time and when uh the noriega situation came about fife explained that it was a label you know management thing it was an industry thing like if noriega's hot let's get him on the record and then you can increase your sales too that's pretty much what it was and you know uh i guess they you know it didn't happen like that uh they broke up they went their separate ways etc uh noriega is still noriega of course um (laughs) But yeah, back then it was it was jarring to me. Like yeah, he's in our line of business now. Right? Noriega's Noriega's a podcaster now. He's like yeah, he's, he's in Miami exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shout out to him and EFN. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, a thing of I, I thought it was like I don't I don't know where you're going with this. What why is this happening? And that's what Fife explained that it was an industry label thing. They had the same manager, Chris Lighty, rest in peace. So it was pretty much let's get the hot guy on your on your record so you can increase your sales too. And uh, con- conversely, you guys were also present for, well, that was like one historic breakup. You were there for a, a great get back together, which was at the 1999 Impact Music Conference, where uh, you guys were at the covering the Def Jam Showcase at Fountain Blue um, and featured a surprise that nobody saw coming, which was the reunion of Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, which yeah. had to be enormous at that time. I mean, that, that, that's an enormous story to break. Yeah, that was amazing just because that that particular party was invite only industry. We weren't we didn't have no invites. We were, you know, these were all New York people um, in the industry. And so we just not snuck in. We like talked about one of the bouncers. We just talked him to death and pretty much was like, all right, shut up, go in, like, leave me alone kind of thing. And that's what we did. We were very persistent. We never we never paid anyone to like let us in or get us backstage. It wasn't nothing like that. It was just we used to say or catchphrase was, it's all about the polys, uh, the politics. So it was like, who you know, who who can get us in, what connection do you have? That's the Miami way too, you know, who, who do you know? I got a guy, you know, that's a Miami thing. They never changed. We all have a guy. <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty much like that. It was, I got a guy that can get us in. I know someone, a friend of a friend, all of that. So that's how we were to get in that night. And yeah, it was amazing. Slick Rick, Dougie Fresh, uh, Jay-Z, uh, DMX, you know, the whole Def Jam lineup. It was a Def Jam party. So that was just incredible uh, to be in that kind of setting where it was a private invite only thing and we were able to cover it and we witnessed history. And, you know, these things are just like, looking back, it's like, man, we really, we really did, you know, we really did something. We really were there for like things that people are like, oh my God, you know, and 
same thing like with Hoodstock and all the artists we saw perform there, um, the How Can I Be Down conference, meeting RZA, you know, when uh, Wu-Tang Forever had just come out, you know, all those things, it, it was just amazing. It was a great time. Yeah, that would have killed me. That's way better than my than my meeting RZA story, which was it, it involved. It, 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 no, it was the central character in my meeting RZA story was more uh, was Ghostface, and it was in um whatever. It was a setting that I can't re- I can't recount on on podcasting. It's not safely in the <laughs> there was too many it's not family friendly <laughs> too many things that are just too family unfriendly in that story. But it was um it was always a trait. <laughs> we met Ghostface at Malibu, actually, at the Grand Prix. He was uh, driving the little go-karts, and, and that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. For us, it was at Spearmint Rhino. So. <laughs> oh, that's cool, too. <laughs> yeah, that's... We, should, we should change the the official uh, slogan of Miami to I Got a Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> There's this key moment um, near the end of the book where, you know, you're, you're talking about the way that the um, – that the industry at that moment was changing. I think about like the ascent of like bad boy and how like the image kind of became, I don't know, maybe it's oversimplistic to say it's like materialistic, but it it was changing. And I think I I bookmarked it here. I just wanted to, from, from the book, it says that you were basically at a hip hop conference and and I'll just read from the book. It's quote, uh, quote, seize your share of the exploding youth market End quote. Uh, these were the calling words that lured corporations such as Ford, NBA, HBO, Pepsi, and Nike. Judging by the major marketing executives attending the Welcome to the Hip Hop Generation conference held in Miami Beach, November 17th and 18th in 1999, made possible thanks to the Strategic Research Institute, a top marketing research firm, that which is still around today and is like a huge player in, in, in my world in advertising and marketing. Um, the two-day presentation also featured established hip hop companies, Enice, RP55, Platform.net, and Bad Boy. Um, those are some blasts from the past names, by the way, devoid of the usual distractions that often accompany these sorts of gatherings. The focus was strictly business oriented. And I'm wondering, do you think that this was like the beginning of the end when companies were like, oh, wow, yeah, let's tune in. You talk about 5 million, you know, Jay-Z sold 5 million records in his first like week. Like there's business opportunity here. Like, did it feel like in that moment, here comes the money. Basically doing to the scene what happened to Winwood, basically. Yeah, so yeah, move yeah. In Gent- gentrification, yeah. absolutely. Buy low so we can sell high later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, by that time, hip-hop was had crossed over. Like, it was it was done. Like, that had already happened. It was already all over MTV, TRL. It was, you know, it was 24-7 hip-hop anywhere you went. So the corporations had no choice. Like, they were they pretty much had to be dragged into the hip hop industry to advertise and, and to make business deals and all of that, because, you know, money talks, like they couldn't deny like JC going platinum in a week. Like they can't, you know, he's up there with Limp Bizkit and uh, Sarah McLaughlin and all these other pop artists at the time. So how, how could they not? Like it would be stupid yeah. of them. Yeah. So yeah, this particular conference, uh, I, I did notice that it was completely quiet, very corporate, no type of, rah rah you know at the hip-hop conferences it was pretty much business for a couple hours and a full-on party and then it was all the trucks driving by blasting music the raps the the, the advertising everywhere the stickers right it, it, i mean that's part of hip-hop scene and the culture but in this particular conference it was none of that it was business you know suits uh, pantsuits for ladies, like very PowerPoint, very, you know, sitting up in a panel. And it was interesting to me to see that these businesses, these corporations are now being forced to take 
hip hop seriously. Yeah. Like they couldn't ignore it anymore. So the crossover was already done. The money was already in. And so that was pretty much like, this is the next chapter. And, and that's what happened. Um, so these, the, this particular conference, I, I take it as like the beginning, not necessarily the end, but the beginning of the next chapter, which became the hip hop as a corporation, hip hop as a business where it, it, it went out from the hip hop oriented advertising. Like for example, a company like St. Ives, the malt liquor company, they had all these rappers making exclusive tracks just for their commercials. The Snoop Dogg were, commercial. Yes. And the, and the Tupac commercial. <laughs> right. Wu-Tang, uh, yeah. Nas, right? Yeah. All of them. Nas, they were yeah. doing Ice Cube, right? But they were being marketed to a specific hip-hop audience that liked the malt liquor because the rappers were always talking about malt liquor. As opposed to this conference where they were taking a guy like Jay-Z and marketing him to suburban white America. Right. You know, to sell a Ford Ranger. Yeah. Exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah to middle America with, you know, as they call it. So that was the main difference where they were taking hip hop from the hip hop scene and bringing it over to the suburban middle American scene. It's funny you talk about, you kind of like invoke the future of like what ended up coming down the pike. And I'm wondering from your perspective, um, what do you see now when you look at today's world of hip hop, not just broadly, but also here in Miami? I mean, Miami's still uh relevant like more than relevant we're, we're pretty important when you think of names like um like triple x tentacion ski mask denzel curry young miami and like music that frankly i'm i'm I'm, a, I'm an older head so i don't like listen to that as much but i'm obviously aware of it i listen to it you know opportunistically i, I get exposed to it and it's incredibly popular how is the hustle different now and like how is miami different now in your opinion yeah, it's pretty much the same. Uh, I was talking to my friend DJ Crazy the other day. He was saying that back then we were all part of a crew, a collective. You know, we all had like a, uh, we were down with someone, with, with somebody, a group. Nowadays, a lot of the artists coming out of Miami are just solo. That They're not part of a crew. They don't have like, you know, they'll have their friends or whatever, but they're not like an established hip hop crew like what we had back then. So that's one, one difference. And then the other difference, of course, uh, the money, because... If you make a hit on SoundCloud and you end up getting signed to a pretty horrible 360 deal, but that 360 deal is going to get you, you know, on the, all the other websites and all the aggregators and and then uh, YouTube and all of that. So there's a whole industry behind that, right? The click farms and the paid and, you know, all that, the whole thing. But even outside of that, just getting that look to go viral or to, you know, have a song on TikTok going viral and all of that. That seems to be enough nowadays. I don't really see like a progression past that where, you know, they want to make album after album after album. There's only a few, like you talk about Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, you know, mm. these kind of guys that they put out albums that are statements that, you know, have something to say that are being artistically um, relevant and making a progression. Whereas a lot of other, you know, artists are just filling in the blanks and going through the motions and, you know, create, creating that image of, you know, the tough guy, the, the, the Don yeah. and all of that. Um, so that's pretty much the, the big difference I see now is it's become very individualistic, individualistic and much more uh, social media and money oriented as opposed yeah. to it's like a brand building exercise. Yes, of. correct. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. brand building. It's like, I want to become, you know, uh, XYZ rapper and I'm going to have my crew, my social media hashtag and I'm going to have... We've got our color stream and our logo. And we have everything set up. Correct, correct. The merch, and the art, up. Yeah. yeah, and then the art takes a backseat to that where the image and the marketing comes first and then the music is sort of like in the background. 
Yeah, so how, how, that, how, much, how much do you attribute that to like the absence of the physical media? Like where now the art has become this super ephemeral thing where it's like, it's right. oh, I'm streaming in all these different places. You can find me, yeah. um, you know, I, you know, uh, like five seconds of my song got played 20 billion times last month on TikTok. Right. Yeah. You know, it, no, I, I'm thinking of like a CD that you can hold in your hand, which yeah. that sounds like I'm an old man yelling at the, the, <laughs> the clouds or something like that. But like, it seems like the the art itself used to be a, a, a possession, like a thing that you would hold. I don't yeah. know. Do you think that that plays into it at all? I, I'll chime in real quick here. But, you know, as, as, a, as a former musician myself and, uh, and, and as someone that really enjoys listening to vinyls and, and without some vinyls, I think the the vinyl, especially like the format and the way you listen to it, really incentivize like full record listening, right? Like listening to the whole album. It's like and, I bought this thing. I'm gonna listen to this thing. Yeah, right. just just the way it's played with the needle, and you know, and, and I think cassette tapes also did that, and I think CDs started like breaking that away. But I do think that like yeah, like digital. Uh, like the way that we listen to music in, in this new like information like digital era really disincentivizes you from listening to like a whole album you know as a as a, as a single work of art and it's more about the the single track i don't know if you agree with that john yeah because you know the technology has advanced so fast that it's become to a point where in our own lifetime we see something like a CD or vinyl become, you know, the standard and then become obsolete. And so what's going to happen right now, we're all streaming, right? We don't even possess anything physically. What's going to be 20 years from now? Are we still going to be streaming? I doubt it. I think there'll be some other, I don't know, can't even sci-fi stuff. But um, when we had the merch, what we call merch now, right? Even that term, we didn't say merch back then. We just said, oh, I got this poster. You know, I can read the liner notes. I can, you know, on the CD booklet and all of that. Now that's all on your phone. So there's no more posters on a wall, but we're all looking at the phone like, okay, I see the album cover and then I stream it and then I'm done with it. I don't, I just pay my monthly subscription to Spotify and then everything else is just waves in the air and, yeah. and I don't, I don't own anything and I don't, I don't have anything to look at. So the technology is progressing so fast that I don't, you know, I don't even see where it could go after streaming. Like, Back then, streaming was sci-fi. We didn't, you know, we had no concept. We didn't know what that, nobody ever thought of that. And then when streaming came along, it's like, oh, of course, it's the easiest, simplest thing in the world. And and so now, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Your guess is as good as mine. But I we're going to be doing I hope it involves years bringing now. back Winamp player because I love Winamp player. <laughs> yeah. I, like, yeah, I would change my skins and go to the purple techno look. and all Right. That yeah. yeah, even that MP3s, you know, came and went. Like, it's, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's hard to think of like, I don't know, like what Tomas was saying, how you can build a concept, like if we're talking about hip hop, like it was written, uh, I was, um, you know, Illmatic, it, great, yeah. great concept album that you have to listen to from the beginning. Uh, we were talking about Ghostface before, right? Um, Iron Man is a great concept yeah. album. You listen to it from the beginning and it tells a story through right. 20 tracks or whatever. But yeah, it's it's like you said, everything else, every, everything that's changing, it's kind of like hard to even imagine where it's going to go. But Right. It's going to have to make room somewhere. And playlists now rule the world. Like you said, yeah. you know, we have a playlist. We have a place for everything. You know, I'm feeling sad. I'm a, you know, I have this playlist. Oh, I'm feeling great. I have this other playlist, you know. <laughs> you program my emotions. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, our guest today was John Cordero. His book is The History of Miami Hip Hop, the story D- the, the story of DJ Khaled, Pitbull, DJ Craze, and other contributors to South Florida scene. You can find it on microcosmpublishing.com or maybe at your local indie bookseller. Uh, John, where else can people keep up with you? Uh, so, yeah, um, you can follow my Instagram at omen305305. Uh, the book is also available at Lucky Records in Wynwood. Um, there's also going to be a few others uh, being added. Uh, also, one last thing, uh, I'm going to have a book release signing event on March 18th, Saturday, March 18th, okay. from 5 p.m. at Soul Garden, also in Wynwood. So uh, look out for that. Nice. So this will be out well there. before then. So if you, uh, you know, if, if you hear this, uh, go out and see John uh, on that day. And we'll, we'll, we'll link to that, too, uh, in the episode description. John, thanks for coming on. Man. Yeah, thank you, thank so you for having me. Thank, thank you. Appreciate it.